Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We are glad you are here for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have bad, good, and crazy martinis, and they all deal with the selection of California Senator Kamala Harris to be the running mate for former Vice President Joe Biden on the Democratic ticket. Jim, we knew it was probably going to be her or Susan Rice. You and I had kind of thought it'd be Rice just because Biden was more familiar with her and worked in the White House. Ultimately, that's not the decision that he made here. So when we look at Kamala Harris, we see the, the New York Times calling her a pragmatic moderate, which is news to me because she was named the most liberal senator in the United States Senate not too long ago, and she's only been there for three years. And oh, by the way, this is continuing a pattern now of first-term senators uh, being named as running mates. Uh, John Edwards, uh, Barack Obama was the head of the ticket as a first-term senator, uh, and now uh, Kamala Harris is the running mate. Uh, so everyone's- You forgot lot- Tim Kaine. Tim Kaine, oh, that's right, he, is a first- he was a first-term senator. He- Greg, I forgive you because everyone <laughs> forgets Tim Kaine, including some members of his family. But yes, <laughs> listeners, little-known trivia, Tim Kaine was Hillary Clinton's running mate. Uh, Look it up. It's true. You know, if I didn't live in Virginia and hadn't had him as governor, I probably would have realized he was still in his first term then. But you're right. Yeah, that's another one. So Kamala Harris is not a pragmatic moderate. Kamala Harris is is, is kind of a radical. We saw it with the uh, Brett Kavanaugh hearing. She's to the far left on pretty much every issue that comes before the United States Senate. I can't think of one where she's been anything other than a a knee-jerk liberal, except for the issue of criminal justice reform. Put a lot of people in jail, which uh, they don't like very much on the left. And it's also, Jim, what caught up to her in one of the early debates when Tulsi Gabbard basically took out her campaign with this. Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash you, bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. So, Jim, with all the caveats, yes, she made history. The first uh, woman of color, uh, both of her parents were immigrants, as you pointed out. Uh, it's an American success story. We just wish it, wish it was an American success story that was based on American principles rather than the ideology of, of Kamala Harris. But she's been hypocritical on issues. We knew we weren't going to like the Democratic choice, but uh, we really don't like this one. There was really no chance Joe Biden was going to pick a running mate that have you and I high-fiving. <laughs> and if he did, something had gone terribly wrong. Um, but uh, you know, between the two, uh, it's interesting. I heard some people who were rooting against Susan Rice because uh, the perception was is that you know while she played good soldier and you know went out in front of the cameras and said whatever she had to say to help the president, that she was basically seen as a uh, let's just say extremely sharp elbowed behind the scenes, uh, loyal to Obama but knives out to everybody else tough to work with, arrogant, just, you know, rub people the wrong way. And by comparison, Kamala Harris was seen as better on that front. Greg, let's observe, more amiable than Susan Rice is a really low bar to clear. <laughs> I'm going to quote another conservative who emailed me this morning, not, not someone who's, you know, high and mighty or famous, but somebody who I think is pretty astute, who said, 
Kamala terrifies me because I think she's a chameleon. She will adopt whatever position she thinks she needs in order to get ahead, which I talked a little bit about in the uh, morning jolt today. You know, she's as liberal as they come, but she's not going to let her freak flag fly if she thinks it's going to hurt her side. And I think that's probably what should have conservatives most ominous about the prospect of a Kamala Harris presidency. By the way, I keep referring to her as she could be, she's on a glide path to potentially be the 47th president of the United States. Assuming, you know, Biden, assume Biden wins, assume something happens where Biden can't continue the job, he'd be 46th. I am not speculating that Mike Pence takes over for a stretch before Inauguration Day or anything like that. I keep, I keep miscounting. <laughs> but yeah, you know, you look at this, the prospect of Kamala Harris being the first woman president of the United States and being the president before the year 2024 or 2028 or something like that are, are pretty darn good right now. And that's really bad if you're conservative because a bit like Barack Obama, she can take very, very liberal positions then end up making them sound very reasonable, very fair. She doesn't come across as radical as her positions actually are. And maybe the difference between her and, say, Bernie Sanders is that Bernie Sanders will say, we need to get rid of every insurance company in America. And some people will say, yeah. And some people will like, wait a second. Well, I like my, my health insurance. I'm okay with it. I, I don't know if I trust the government running this whole thing. Am I going to be in as good shape under this change or not? And Bernie Sanders knows some people are very nervous about that. In fact, you know, when, once you tell people, are you willing to give up private health insurance to get Medicare for all, suddenly it drops down to like 19% uh, support. Bernie Sanders will charge ahead. Bernie Sanders' attitude is, well, this is so right. This is so important. I'm going to hold this position, even if it, this possibility frightens some people. Kamala Harris flip-flopped. The moment she realized this might cost her votes, she kind of backed away. And in fact, one of the stories and one of the reasons her presidential campaign was not as successful as she wanted was you can find time and again, she would take a stance on an issue, generally responding in front of a live audience the way that live audience wanted to hear. And then the consequences of that stance became clear and she backed away and said she misheard the question. And you know, Kamala Harris, on the one hand, like you can kind of attack her as a flip-flopper, but it also means she's not going to stick to a position that's going to undermine her political capital. And that makes her a little tougher. Uh, as a potential foe, and let's face it, as a potential president. This will work to some uh, rebound for the Trump administration, Trump campaign. Uh, it'll remind uh, conservatives and Republicans and independents who don't love Trump and are kind of frustrated with how he's going about the job, um, you know, remind them of what they don't like about the Democratic Party. Um, I think as you get closer to Election Day, you'll see the kind of this natural tightening of the race. You know, disgruntled Republicans will come home, you know, the independents will split probably close to down the middle like they usually do, although maybe this year is such a different set of circumstances, it won't be like that. But uh, there's also one glaring issue that I think she helps Biden on. You know, we've seen, you know, really disturbing images of unrest and violence in America's cities. And Trump wanted, you know, Trump's instincts on this are always law and order. And to say, I'm going to get tough on these guys. I'm going to lock them up and throw away the keys. He's, you know, very heavily shaped by the pre-Giuliani New York City. He has always believed, you know, lock them up, throw away the key and, you know, get tough. And he wants to say the Biden and the Democrats are the party of anarchy. They're the party of taking it easy on criminals. They're afraid to stand up for law-abiding citizens, et cetera, et cetera. Well, look, what was the single most common meme during the primary, Greg? Kamala's going to put you in jail. Right? Kamala's a cop, right? By the way, she's not a cop. She's always a prosecutor. And I think you can argue that she made some very bad decisions as a prosecutor. But the perception during the primary was, was that she was the one who was going to kick down your door and throw handcuffs on you if your kids didn't go to school. And by the way, she did do that in California. So um, she, I think, you know, helps, uh, helps counter this you know, instinctive attack from the Trump campaign. I think the idea that, you know, 
uh, abolish the police. Look, you don't pick Kamala Harris if that's your running mate. <laughs> you know, it just uh, uh, just doesn't fly. Oh, by the way, it also indi- indicates how little traction the abolish the police movement has actually gotten in democratic circles. So, you know, again, it, you know, it's, she's going to provide some opportunities for the Trump campaign, but by and large, if she really is going to be a heartbeat away from the presidency, and that heartbeat belongs to Joe Biden, uh, I think if you're conservative, you just felt a, uh, a great disturbance in the force. Well, there's a couple of things I would say to that. First of all, she is on the record for heartily cheering Eric Garcetti's uh, push to take away $150 million of funding for police. So there's certainly that out there. And then there's also, this will probably play more to the right than, than anyone in the middle, but her persecution and prosecution of David Daleiden and the folks at the Center for Medical Progress who did the undercover work against Planned Parenthood, the way that she threw the book at them, did raids on their homes. I mean, this is a woman who a lot of people have said will have no trouble trampling constitutional rights if it comes to preserving her agenda. So uh, yes, she is, uh, can be aggressive on the law enforcement front, but it's not in a way that I think a lot of people are going to like. We can point to any unpopular stance she's ever taken or controversial stance. But I mean, the good news is, Greg, the moment the polling turns, she'll change her mind. Yes. Well, she's very much like Joe Biden there. She's, she's got a, a decent uh, finger in the wind skill. I mean, we saw it after virtually every early debate where she was on stage going, yeah, single payer, Medicare yeah. for all. And then she'd get on the morning shows and, oh, I just meant for me. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> mean for everybody. I think an avenue of attack that would be useful in normal circumstances. Her campaign was a mess. And reportedly, New York Times did a big piece on this. Politico apparently was really a mess behind the scenes. Lots of infighting, lots of indecisiveness. She'd make a decision and then she'd backtrack on it. And it just seemed like she wasn't actually a strong leader. She had real trouble keeping everybody rowing in the same direction on her campaign. And every campaign has this to a certain extent, but it really sounded like it was debilitating. Now, what's weird is that, you know, like, so in a normal time, you could say, look, Kamala Harris, a heartbeat away from the presidency, she may not be the best manager. Every president finds running the executive branch tougher than they expected. She could have real problems with this. The problem is, this is a really tough argument to make when the president is spending time during a serious pandemic, doing executive time and yelling on the television screen about Joe Scarborough's intern and (laughs) whose ratings are high and how Fox isn't loyal enough and stuff like that. So, um, but if we see, if we happen to have a president Kamala Harris and she's really bad at managing the executive branch, don't say you weren't warned America. No, that's absolutely right. And there are issues out there like the unrest in the cities, the violence, the rioting in the cities that could play well for President Trump, but he's out there framing it as suburban housewives will vote for me. And there's nothing that women in the suburbs love to be called more than suburban housewives. So uh, anyway, messaging people, messaging. All right. You know, if you get tired of the uh, political onslaught here over the next three months, Need some escape? Well, let's not forget that there's a ton of good entertainment out there, and ExpressVPN can help you get that and protect you at the same time, because ExpressVPN lets you access the internet as if you're from a different country. Netflix has different shows and movies available depending on where you are. So with ExpressVPN, you can unlock thousands of new shows and movies from streaming libraries around the globe. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, But ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast. You can stream everything in HD quality with zero buffering. And ExpressVPN is available on every device, phones, laptops, tablets, and even your TV. ExpressVPN works with many streaming services, Netflix, Amazon Prime, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, and many more. And you can choose from almost 100 different countries. 
So what this means is it's really simple to use. You just fire up your ExpressVPN app, you change your location, you hit connect, refresh the page, and the show or movie that you want to watch will magically appear. Now, people may not realize this, but you know Netflix gets different rights for different shows in different countries, and sometimes in another country, they'll be able to watch a show or a movie that you'd like to watch, but you can't in your country because Netflix US doesn't have the rights to that. For example, Netflix United Kingdom has access to Black Adder, starring Rowan Atkinson. Now, and by the way, also a very young Hugh Laurie. Now, here's the thing. Humanity has like, you know, four basic needs. Food, water, shelter, and Blackadder. Um, I really believe the fact that you can't easily access Blackadder here in the United States as a crime against humanity. If everything I need to know about British history, I learned from Blackadder. Thanks to ExpressVPN, you just boop, click over to Netflix UK and you can watch that as well as all kinds of other programs. For example, Netflix Australia has Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, but Americans are denied this. Greg, is America truly great if we can't get access to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Good question. I mean, from West Philadelphia all the way to uh, the West Coast, I think there's a, a strong demand for that. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, ExpressVPN gives you access to all that stuff. It unlocks content. Uh, it gives you access to this great stuff. And uh, it protects you from, from hackers and, and everybody else who's trying to weasel their way into your system because they don't trace it back to you. They trace it back to these other places that ExpressVPN sets up. So if you use our link right now at expressvpn.com slash martini, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Yep, for free. That's expressvpn.com slash martini. All right, Jim, we started with the bad martini. Now we go to the good martini. Uh, magnanimous gesture, I thought, yesterday from Sarah Palin, the former Alaska governor who was the first Republican woman to be part of a national ticket. Somehow back in 2008, that was not lauded the way that uh, Kamala <laughs> Harris is being lauded now. The, the knives were out in short order, especially after she gave a very popular convention speech. And over the next couple of months, uh, Palin ran into some issues. But uh, she put out a statement uh, congratulating Harris, saying she was standing on the shoulders of Geraldine Ferraro and her, who were the, the trailblazers in their respective party. And then she offered Harris some advice, which is very earnest advice. It's not snarky at all. Uh, and it certainly is clear that it's born from her experience in 2008. First piece of wisdom, out of the shoot, trust no one new. Fight mightily to keep your own team with you. They know you, know your voice, and most importantly, are trustworthy. She also says, don't get muzzled. Connect with uh, the media and voters in your own unique way. She says, some Yahoo's running campaigns will suffocate you with their own self-centered agenda. So remember, you were chosen for who you are. So stay connected with America as you smile and ignore deceptive handlers trying to change you. Uh, she also talked about how she loved the rope line where she could, she could actually interact directly with voters. I'm not sure how many rope lines there are going to be this fall. Uh, and then finally, she says, don't forget the, the women who came before you. And finally, have fun. So Jim, this is a good martini in a number of ways. First of all, it's crossing the aisle and giving genuine advice to someone I'm sure she disagrees with on virtually everything. But uh, in the spirit of our system and, and in, uh, in the spirit of our democratic republic, she, she's being earnest here, I think. And secondly, she takes some beautiful shots at the horrible people from the McCain campaign, uh, like Weaver and Schmidt and probably Nicole Wallace, who are now, of course, lining themselves up as Democrats. And so a little bit of payback for how she's been treated by those McCain campaign alumni. 
Yeah, I, I think one of the more intriguing and, and you know, generally pleasing moments, uh, both during the 2008 campaign and afterwards, were the uh, joint appearances in a couple events between Sarah Palin and Geraldine Ferraro, and the degree to which they seemed to get along, and if nothing else, even if they didn't, just didn't agree on a whole bunch of issues, uh, how much they seemed to respect each other for having walked down that same path and dealt with the same slings and arrows. Um, I, I see this comment from Sarah Palin, and you begin to recognize how much uh, she was a very big player in GOP politics after the 2008 campaign for a while and then kind of faded year by year. And when Trump came along, uh, she endorsed him. She went to the White House, but she is just not the voice in the Republican Party uh, that she used to be. And I hear this and I kind of find myself saying, I wish we'd hear from Sarah Palin a bit more. Not so much on, maybe not on this policy or that policy, but just on this experience. Like I said, she's been down this path. She has seen what's coming for Kamala Harris, probably not the same way. But, you know, this, this observation that you are now part of a campaign and part of staffers who have, may or may not have your long-term best interest at heart. Um, I, I also think it's very revealing that the McCain staffers who so openly uh, detested the choice did not, uh, support, you know, I mean, basically Steve Schmidt turned around and allowed HBO to make a life, you know, make a movie of his life, uh, in which he's played by Woody Harrelson. He does not look like Woody Harrelson. Uh, in which he would be this, you know, the heroic guy standing on principle who, you know, whereas, you know, Sarah Palin was this out of control monster. And there was great potential for Sarah Palin as a leader in that. And that entire process basically was designed to chew her up and spit her out. I didn't agree with everything she did after she left the governorship or how she left the governorship, but it is very hard to begrudge her how much she was uh, put through the metaphorical meat grinder through that process. The vice president is this very odd role in which your job is, you know, I think it was uh, Gary Trudeau in Doonesbury cartoons who used to do jokes about George H.W. Bush putting his manhood at a blind trust or his spine in a blind. But you know, your job is to support the principal. Your job is to support the top of the ticket. And that often means not being as good as that person. You can't outshine them. You have to, uh, you have to be second best. You have to not do things that are necessarily best for you in order to make that nominee look better. Um, and I just think it's uh, uh, Kamala Harris may have a little friction on this. I, I think she also herself is uh, quite ambitious, quite driven, and not used to playing second fiddle. So it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out over the next couple of months. But again, I think it's a classy move and a very honest statement from Sarah Palin. And I think Kamala Harris would be very wise to, uh, to heed those words. Yes, I agree completely. I think it's going to be a little different in this case because I think Kamala Harris is going to be given the ball over and over and over again because Joe Biden is not capable of carrying it. Uh, I think Sarah Palin was basically brought on to, okay, appease the base and say what we tell you to say. Uh, whereas with Kamala Harris, uh, she's going to be probably out front more than the actual nominee will. Uh, speaking of Schmidt and uh, Weaver and some of these other characters at the Lincoln Project, you know, the true conservatives, Jim, the really principled ones, this is their statement. They're not just talking about how much they hate Trump, which you can't expect at this point. They're actually talking about how much they love Kamala Harris. Uh, the statement is the Lincoln Project fully endorses former Vice President Biden's selection of Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate, said Reed Galen, co-founder of the Lincoln Project, quote, Harris is renowned for her legal expertise and has proven herself to be a steadfast defender of justice and human rights. She has a deserved reputation for opposing the reprehensible actions the current administration has engaged in against both our own citizens and our allies. We believe she'll be a powerful asset to the Biden campaign. 
So Jim, you know, uh, if you're the principled conservative, you know, maybe there's an argument that uh, I got to hold my nose and sit it out. Or maybe I think Biden will be the, the least of bad options and compared to Sanders back in the primary or something. But now when you're completely uh, slobbering all over Kamala Harris, I think that the jig is pretty much up here. Yeah, you know, so I mentioned, uh, you know, Steve Schmidt and to a lesser extent, Nicole Wallace in The Last Martini. Um, also a big player in the Lincoln Project is John Weaver, who has built his career on running not so conservative Republicans for president named John, uh, whether it's John McCain, John Kasich, or John Huntsman. If you're a not very conservative Republican named John, John Weaver wants to make you president. Um, and, and a bunch of these other folk, Reed Galen, some of these guys I used to be on good terms with, but let's all observe, they're all pretty long in the tooth. They are frequently described in their posts on MSNBC as Republican consultants, although it's kind of fair to wonder, what was the last Republican campaign they consulted on? I think in the, you know, Rick Wilson was doing Republican campaigns in the Obama years. I don't know if he's done any since then. And almost all of these people have reinvented themselves as pretty much full-time anti-Trump voices on the right. Now, look, listeners to this podcast know I got a lot of problems with this president. I don't think he's really conservative. In, in, by a bunch of measuring sticks. Uh, he's, he's effectively a populist. I think he's also very erratic. I think he just does whatever seems right in any given moment and doesn't think too far down the road. He almost never talks about liberty and freedom. He almost never talks about the Constitution. I don't think he knows that much about what's in the Constitution. But he's made some judicial picks that are good. Uh, he's generally pro-Second Amendment. He's cut taxes. There, there's stuff for a conservative to root for in this administration. But, you know, I, I can completely see why a conservative or someone who'd spent themselves in this Reaganite mindset, looking at Trump, at his disregard for our previous alliances, uh, at his trashing of law enforcement and the intelligence community, uh, his uh, you know, train wreck of a personal life and social values. He doesn't care about deficit and the debt, doesn't want to reform entitlements. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch to complain about. But He's not the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party is down the line opposed to just about everything the Republican Party wants. That's what makes them the Democratic Party. So I get being anti-Trump. I don't get how you think of yourself as a conservative or as a Republican, and then you say, I love what Joe Biden and the Democrats stand for. Maybe you could really squint and, and close one eye and argue that Biden is a moderating force in today's Democratic Party. He's not that much of one. As I said, when they say Joe Biden's a centrist, they mean he's in the center of the Democratic Party. Joe Biden wants everybody to get along. And that means he's not a hard lefty. But it also means he's not that interested in fighting the hard lefties. He wants to figure out some way to give them half a loaf and hope they'll be happy with that. Spoiler alert, they won't be. But anyway, that's, that's who Biden is. Okay, fine. The idea that any self-described conservative could look at Kamala Harris and say, yes, that is what this country needs. At that point, no. You are not a conservative. In one of the debates, Joe Biden, you know, she talked about uh, various gun control proposals, including basically confiscation. And it was, it was indeed left to Joe Biden to point out that, hey, there's a Second Amendment in the Constitution. You can't do that stuff. Kamala Harris laughed at her, at him. And Kamala Harris said, Joe, instead of saying, no, we can't, shouldn't we be saying, yes, we can? <laughs> and the crowd loved it. The crowd ended up with a spoon. And this, this is basically saying the Constitution doesn't matter. I don't care that the Constitution has a Second Amendment. I want to do these things, and I'm not going to let a little thing like a yellowing piece of parchment at the National Archives stop me from doing this. Once you believe that, you are not conservative. Because you're not conserving anything. There's nothing you want to stand for. Your attitude is the federal government should do whatever the president wants it to do. That's not conservative. 
So none of us are that shocked by the fact. It's not like the Lincoln Project was going to come out and say, look, we resolutely oppose everything Trump says and does, but boy, Biden botched his Veep pick, and so we can't support him anymore. They kind of got, you know, shoot, you know, they backed themselves into this corner where they had to support anybody Biden picked. But Biden picked one that's really, you know, completely unjustifiable from a conservative perspective. And, you know, they're telling you who they are. But again, these guys aren't doing any more Republican consulting. They're not on the right anymore. The only way that they're on the right is that their previous identity of what they did earlier in their careers gives them a status. You know, it's the old saying, Jen, Jen Rubin, if she was not formally writing for the American Spectator and other conservative magazines, would not be, uh, it would just be another liberal progressive columnist. Wouldn't stand out at all. All of these people have a status based on what they used to do because what they're doing right now is completely indistinguishable from what the rest of the left is doing. Very well said, Jim. And uh, that was the second half of the bad martini. Let's get on to our crazy martini now. But that was, that was an excellent exposition of what's going on with that. Uh, speaking of never Trumpers, let's talk about Bill Crystal, formerly of the Weekly Standard, now of the, the Bulwark. Uh, here's his idea after yesterday's announcement. Just an innocent thought. We've seen Biden in office for over four decades, and we've seen Trump nonstop for the last four years. We've seen enough to make up our minds about them. So let's skip the presidential debates, but have three vice presidential debates. So he's not nervous at all about uh, Biden having to go on stage for an hour and a half, three different times. And then he got some blowback. So he says, I've suggested in semi-jest that Biden not debate Trump, but I really do wonder if Biden shouldn't refuse to debate Trump. He's still semi-jesting here. I can't even tell. Should he dignify by sharing a debate stage? Someone who's accused President Obama of treason? Did Truman debate Joe McCarthy? Did Ike debate Robert Welch? Jim, I don't remember when Joe McCarthy and Robert Welch were the nominees for major party nominations or the sitting presidents of the United States. So uh, what do you make of uh, Crystal here? Is he a little schizophrenic or is he running scared? Well, I'm not going to diagnose him from a distance. <laughs> but here's an observation. If Joe Biden throughout this, you know, in, in the year 2019, 2020, in every debate he had gone out there and he had debated the, the doors off the place. If he had gone out there and everyone had been Sam Waterston in Law and Order, how dare you, sir? No further questions, Your Honor. You know, this, this, if, if Joe Biden had been terrific, does anybody think Bill Kristol or anybody else on the Democratic side would be saying we shouldn't have presidential debates this year? Come on, man, as Joe Biden himself would, would put it. You know, at this, if you had great confidence in Joe Biden going out there and, and just, you know, rhetorically pulling down the pants of, of, uh, of Donald Trump, you'd, well, you'd want to see it. You'd be like, all right, go out there, nail him, let's show him, you know. Look, they're nervous Joe Biden is going to go out there and lay an egg. And I wrote about this a bit in yesterday's uh, morning jolt. Look, I don't think Joe Biden has Alzheimer's. I don't think he has dementia. But we've all been watching him. And we can tell his, you know, that since the pandemic, they have not been sending him out any more than they have to, partially for health reasons, but also because going out, he doesn't go out and give speeches as well as he used to. And in these debates, you know, he, he did okay against uh, Bernie Sanders in that last one. I think he's still got some good nights left in him. I don't know if he's got four years of good nights left in him. And I think it's safe to wonder that with Joe Biden, he goes out in front of a podium you don't know what you're going to get. Uh, he could be, you know, uh, on his game and sharp and focused, or he could be kind of meandering and seemingly forgetful and suddenly segue without warning into stories about corn pop. And you could just kind of feel like you're with grandpa in the home and you're, you know, hoping he's having one of his lucid days. Uh, so the interesting, you know, look, it, it just seems very clear that Joe Biden is not who he used to be and not as sharp. And, and, you know, he could go out there and do fine. 
or he'd go out there and look bad. And with Trump, who is probably going to come out there and say, your, your, your son's a crook. You're a failure as vice president. You're going to let the anarchists take over. You know, like, like Trump will come out there swinging from word one. And Biden might be ready. He might not be ready. Biden might start strong and then fade as the night goes on. These traditional, traditionally, you know, these debates go on for about uh, uh, 90 minutes or so. You could see Biden having a really bad moment. And then that nagging question, is Biden, you know, capable of handling the duties of this job for the next four years? Rasmussen polls said 59% of Americans say they don't think Biden's going to last four years. So, you know, there's reason for Bill Crystal to be feeling nervous about this. I think it's fairly transparent, though, when you say, oh, it's, it's because of the kind of debater. Tr- oh, no, come on, come on. And look, this is part of the process. We've already, you know, we're not going to have a traditional convention. There has been a lot of traditional rallies and, and all the other things that traditionally happen. Giving up on the presidential debates, ostensibly because of the coronavirus or something, is kind of ridiculous. And nobody, you know, look, they, if, they could hold off, if they could pull off the Sanders-Biden debate with them six feet apart, there's really no reason to think they can't do this with Trump and Biden. The sneaking suspicion is that this is because people are worried that Biden can't function at a high level for 90 minutes. And honestly, if you can't function for a high level at 90 minutes, you probably shouldn't be running for president of the United States. Jim, uh, well, the race is on now officially. Next week, we get to listen to the Democratic National Convention. But uh, fortunately, that doesn't start yet. We'll see you tomorrow. You know what's a tragedy, Greg? What? Without the pandemic, I'd probably be eating brats next week. Ah, life is full of tragedies, Greg. It is. Hopefully Milwaukee is going to have less violence next week. That's probably the one upside. All right. uh, Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget our great sponsor, expressvpn.com slash martini. Also subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. Leave us a kind review and please give us five stars. Also get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And join us on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.